We could always make room for these new orders by getting rid of the Jesuits. I'm sure there's good Jesuits somewhere. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are talking about eight orders that I would like to see exist. Uh, In this episode, not only do we have all eight of those things in no particular order, but I will do a countdown nonetheless... But we have a mailbag question and a few comments about the last episode on the Pope. A couple of you guys reached out. Some of you absolutely loved the episode, helped you a lot, clarified a bunch of things, and somebody else thought is a bit on the harsh side. So I'll clarify a few things for you. Um, But yeah, I stand by that episode. Think it was a good one. Let's find out if this one is. Number one, the first order that uh, I'd like to see exist, that I think there's a need in the church for. I'm just going to say order. It could be organization, group, apostolate, who knows? Lots of Catholic terminology floating around. We'll just call them orders. I named this first one the Order of St. Tobit, Barrier of the Dead, though technically I think it's his dad, Tobias. But anyways, the stats from the National Funeral Directors Association say that within the next five years, 60% of all funeral home directors are set to retire. Well, that's going to cause a pretty big hole right there. And traditionally, the church has cared for the dead. That's one of the uh, corporal acts of mercy we can do is to bury the dead. Something we see all the way back in the Old Testament, the importance there. And it hits a new height, given the incarnation. Um... Right now, if we don't do anything, if we don't have a jump in people who wish to be morticians and funeral home directors, etc., then what's most likely going to happen is more people are going to be cremated. And listen, there's nothing wrong with cremation. Um, The church has said that this is something that Catholics can do. However, historically, it was banned. Not because of what it is in and of itself, but because it was often used as an act of protest against the Christian idea of the resurrection of the dead. So pagan groups would burn their bodies of their dead and say, ha, what happens now is a middle finger up to Christianity. So Catholics were not permitted for a long time to cremate the bodies of their loved ones. Um, So although it's not bad, it's the ideal that we show the maximum amount of reverence that we reasonably and affordably can. And Many people um, prefer to have a traditional burial, even if they might choose cremation for other reasonable reasons. So if we jumped in here, we could offer to more people their ideal way of caring for their deceased loved one. It's a corporal act of mercy, and it's also a huge moneymaker. I think uh, the way I would imagine this would play out is those people who could afford to pay would, and people who can't, The church steps in and provides their loved one a dignified death. What a wonderful witness to people. And it's also a deeply evangelistic thing. If you find that in the moment of crisis, the Catholic Church of all places steps up to provide dignity to your loved one at the point of their death and to help you out in your time of need, um, that's really cool. That's a wonderful witness to our faith. That's why is the number one. There's a big need. It's coming soon. The church could step in. Something we've historically done. It's one of the acts of mercy. So there you go. The second one I call the Order of the Inquisitor. Now, technically, the Inquisition just got renamed a few times, and we kind of already have them with us. But is it the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith? Or I don't know. But this one would be a little bit different. I imagine these people going from parish to parish and uh, visiting RCIA programs, finding out if they're teaching Catholicism or not, because way more than you would like to think, the answer is, or not. So checking in on those, getting rid of programs which are bad, combining them with parishes where they're doing a good job, setting them up with training and materials so that this giant door into the church, the RCIA program and CCD programs, etc., are actually, you know, teaching Catholicism, which I don't think is too much to ask. Um, another thing they can do 
is check out parishes which are suspected of teaching all sorts of other heresy, more likely just from the pulpit. Many homilies are full of who knows what, and it's virtually impossible for a bishop to know exactly what's being taught in every single one of their parishes. As much as they're responsible to make sure that what's happening in their diocese is orthodox, uh, yeah, they're going to need some help. So these guys would go and help out, not just to smash the priests who were saying something wrong by accident, but to really sniff out who's sowing heretical ideas and and uh, who's not. Because I think we've all been to parishes where people have said some pretty wild stuff from the pulpit. Uh, if you do hear that, let the bishop know, because, you know, we're supposed to work as a team here, help out our bishop. Um, so who would do this? I think there's a variety of excellent Catholic theologians um, who'd be up for the task, and I could certainly review some of these things. Um, there was even a large RCIA program curriculum maker uh, that I found uh, their materials at a church that I was teaching RCIA at, and they, well, they had some pretty problematic stuff, and I had to report that to the bishop that was in their area so they could take action. So more people doing that would do the church a great service. All right. Um, number three. Number three is the Order of the Crusader. One of the acts of mercy which we can do is to set free captives. We talked ooh, two episodes ago about what Maimonides lists as the greatest acts of charity, and he puts right at the tippy top if somebody is in, in captivity to free them. So this would be the role. So remember when Boko Haram, the terror group over in Africa, took a bunch of girls and held them hostage? Yeah, the Order of the Crusader would be a military or paramilitary group that would go and help find them and bring them back. Uh, another group would be all the people who assisted the U.S. and other countries as translators against the Taliban who have been left to die or worse in Afghanistan. The Order of the Crusaders could find those people and help to get them out. Right now, there's a huge amount of sex slavery, which is going on in Southeast Asia and, well, all over the world. And these are people who are captives. And, uh, yeah, we get a free captives. So they would track down where these people are kept and get them back. And if governments are getting kickbacks and corrupt and uh, stand in their way, well, we ignore them. Because we have a higher mission, and that is to care for all of our our brothers and sisters on this earth to be our brother's keeper. And uh, that means to make sure they're not in some type of awful slavery. So use whatever force is necessary to get them out. Um, lastly, we have, say, the, the captives taken by Hamas. We would have a large group of people saying, we can assist in helping you get these people back. And just imagine if a group like this arrived at your parish and said, hey, we're raising a little bit of money here, guys. We, uh, we're a little bit down on cash. We've spent it all on ammo from, from shooting sex traffickers in the face. So we're going to be passing around the, the collection basket now. Who wouldn't put something in the plate for that? I think that's incredible. So what this would look like would be a professional force that calls on, say, Catholic re reservists that uh, register their skill sets. Uh, they would coordinate with existing groups that care for people who come out of these type of awful captivity and treat people who have been abused or have PTSD, etc. So they would coordinate with these groups to make sure that once they're out of captivity, um, we can help them out and absorb them into our communities. Number four, I call these the, uh, the missionaries of the unwanted. Right now, we have a ton of foster children that need to be adopted. And hey, if you can adopt one, go for it. That's super awesome. We also have a lot of people who are basically in a juvenile detention or they're, uh, or, or they're held in a, a group home for disturbed children. And uh, yeah, that stuff's not going well. My brother worked at such a place and he got to look at the books and he found that in this nonprofit organization, which did a not very good job caring for these kids. 
They were receiving $1,100 per day per kid to keep them in little cinder block rooms and not really help them ever improve. It was an entirely secular organization, which had no answer to the suffering that they have absolutely had that made them the way that they are. They would say things like, well, okay, yeah, uh, you know, you're separated from your parents and and uh, your life is looking pretty bleak and uh, why don't you just try living in the moment? Li- li- live in the moment. What, what, what a terribly awful answer to give to somebody who's been through all sorts of terrible abuse and trauma. Just live in the moment. Mm-mm. So if we had religious groups which took on exactly this, who could do it for a heck of a lot less and would be able to take these people in, we could give them real answers to suffering. We could give them real solutions for the terrible lives that they've been dealt. And hopefully we'd be able to uh, to uh, be a witness to others that the church does want the unwanted. Okay, I'll add one point here. Imagine how this would work. Let's say we basically took over this this whole section of society, that we did it as a church. And then the culture gets worse, and let's say uh, somebody has their kid taken away because they won't give uh, so-called gender-affirming care. Well, where would that kid go? Well, it did go back to the Catholic community. (laughs) So we're actually protecting ourselves from that type of downstream effect. Which leads me to order number five. This one I call the Order of the Jailer. Um, Right now, private prisons are not the norm, but they're about 8% of all prison capacity, and they're growing. And on average, each inmate uh, is is worth about $43,800, according to the federalregister.gov 2021 stats which means this is yet another order that could be self-funding. I think there's certainly ways that we could do a better and cheaper job than what private prisons are doing. And if we could, and if we're also out-competing federal and state prisons, we might be able to take this on, I don't know, maybe an entirety. (laughs) And yet again, the church in the past was involved with this. In fact, when we talk about a prison cell, the word cell comes from the monastic cell, which predated it. So the prison cell was meant to be based on the monastery cell originally. And in some cases, monasteries did house types of prisoners. So there were also ecclesial prisons for certain crimes. So the church has been involved in this in the past. And this allows us to perform another wonderful act of mercy, to visit those in prison. If we just owned the prisons, then, well, we'd be doing a lot of visiting. We would make sure that these people are actually reformed. They wouldn't just be housed, but they would be, they would be taught the tenets of our faith um, to the extent that they're, they're willing to hear. Um, for those who end up deciding to convert, they can be reformed by the power of the sacraments offered, offered by the church. This wouldn't just be a prison ministry in a prison, this would be an entire setup focused on drawing people out of sin and back into a peaceful community. And I will add, um, imagine if we took this one over, if we booted out the private prison system by undercutting them because, hey, maybe we'll subsidize it. Then maybe we'll do a hostile takeover of the existing prisons so that we can get all of that uh, that uh, infrastructure on the cheap. I don't know, but Let's say we took this over and we continued to uh, to uh, take prisoners from state and local until it just was cheaper and easier for the uh, the government to just send people to our prisons, just run by Catholic churches, just privately. Well, if society gets much, much worse, and let's say we have uh, people being thrown into prison because they're protesting in front of abortion clinics or something. And there was a case of that guy who got raided by the FBI because he was, what, quietly praying in front of a... I don't know all the details, but you guys probably heard that story a while ago. Well, if we ran the prisons, then that protects us from government tyranny, 
in a uh, in a pretty cool way. All right, um, let's see. Other things this could include would be uh, some job training. Uh, people could come in, make friends. We could absorb them into the community. We could use parishes and the employers they're in to uh, set people up when they come out. Okay, number six. We are rocketing through today. It's a rare day that I actually am this succinct on the podcast, but we're already to number six. This one I call the Order of St. Paul the Tent Maker. Now, the idea behind this is that Paul could have charged for his work, but he decided not to. Um, instead, he did a trade. He made tents and he made enough money so that he could support his own ministry so that nobody would ever say, you're basically just being a sophist. You're just preaching the gospel for your own advantage. He didn't want that even to be a charge. So he just wanted to fund everything himself. And that's cool. Now, in the Old Testament, it's quite clear that the Levites don't get an apportionment of land because they, well, A, get cities, but also because the tithe from the people, different sacrifices from the people belong to them. And that's a bit of a trade. They're priests, and in exchange, they have an actual right to the tithes of the people. And that continues into the New Testament. When we have New Testament priests, they have a right to support from the community. And for a similar reason, having that land meant that you continue in perpetuity, that you get to inhabit it, but they're giving that up. The New Testament priests, who are primarily celibate, are also giving up the opportunity to inhabit our earth in perpetuity through the generation of children. So I'm not saying they don't have a right or we shouldn't support them. We should. But I like Paul's option. And I think there should be at least some people who take up the order of St. Paul the tent maker. Here's how I imagine it. Especially if you're in a really poor parish, maybe, um, you know, our one of the churches I'm associated with uh, has a sister parish over in Haiti. And they've done incredible stuff. When they had an earthquake, they lost good, good clean water. So the church went and got wells dug. They also got people together to redig infrastructure and lay new pipes. And they took over where the government was too corrupt, inept, or broke <laughs> to, uh, to do. And they provided a whole community with water. That's so cool that the church was able to be a gift to the people around. It wasn't asking for something. It was in a position to give. That's so cool. Not always possible, but it's really great when it is. So let's say we have a, a priest in a poor parish like this. They could go up to the North Carolina oil fields where you can make 150, 200,000 bucks a year, just basic. Um, or they could go up and be a Alaskan crab fisherman where, again, you could be easily pulling in over 200K a year just as a regular greenhorn. We've all seen the, uh, the TV shows surrounding this. So they take on difficult but extraordinarily well-paying jobs in whatever area of the world they can make the most. And uh, then they come back to their own parish. They don't have to be supported, but they can support others. Now, priests are called father. And there's an ex uh, certainly a strong way in which even if they're supported by tithe, they are acting as a father in supporting us in prayer, in supporting us by feeding us through the sacraments, healing us in the sacrament of confession or reconciliation, etc. But this is a very tangible way. And hey, we're a sacramental faith. So I think this needs to be on the table where some people get to see the father-like role of the priest as one who takes on very difficult, dangerous work to care for the corporal needs of their people as just a sheer act of love. So that's it. That's the, uh, that's the uh, order of St. Paul the Tentmaker. Not for everybody, but I think it'd be an incredible witness for some people. Wouldn't you like to go to a parish where the, uh, the priest is, is uh, that much of a, of a tough fella? You know, you could see that he's, he's uh, done extremely difficult, hard work, and he's done that out of love for the people in the parish. What would the people in the parish think of him? They would have incredible respect for a guy like that. So that's another one. Two more. The next one, this one's kind of similar to an earlier one, but it's called 
the Order of St. Joseph the Foster Father. Turns out that, uh, far and away, the largest predicting factor of pretty much every negative outcome is not having a dad. What you may not have known is that having a dad across the street helps. So if we look at negative outcomes for different areas, it correlates really well with if there's dads in the area at all. So just having men in a community as a neighbor or as somebody who a child will interact with can protect them from many of the negative outcomes associated with fatherlessness. And again, this is something that goes deep into the Catholic tradition, caring for the fatherless straight up in scripture. We care for widows, orphans, the, the fatherness, the fatherless, etc. And in the past, monks have done a lot of this. In fact, it was pretty normal for school teachers to be monks because it was seen that they were, in a sense, responsible for the care of the children and the raising them up and teaching them in the faith. So I think we should get back to a little bit of that. Um, we could have an order, maybe a religious order, where people go into the community where there are the least amount of children with fathers and just play basketball, hang out with them. Kind of like, uh, you know, there's secular groups that do this too, but let's inform it with our faith. And I'm pretty sure there are groups like this. And uh, I will say that if you hear any of my suggestions and you know of a group which pretty much pretty much matches, uh, let me know. And I want to highlight them on the podcast because I think all of these are great. Number eight, the very last one. I call these the, uh, the Servants of Cyrus. So Cyrus, uh, Cyrus II, sent the Jews back into their land after the exile to rebuild the temple. And today, a lot of our old buildings need rebuilding, need renovations, and a lot of our new buildings are pretty awful. Not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty awful. And what they need is to be dressed up, to look beautiful. We need artists. We need skilled craftsmen who can come in and really work on making every church we have a place decked out for worship, a place which just preaches on every wall and ceiling. Um, you know, it's, it's often put to whatever priest that's there, if they start a new church, to pick out the things like colors or carpeting or what kind of uh, stained glass they're going to have. And while some priests are actually really good at this, a lot of them would really appreciate help. And not just help from whatever, you know, very kind old lady wishes to be on whatever council, but by like trained artists who can step up and really make the most out of the gifts that are given uh, towards these new parishes. So as Catholics, we believe that beauty is a privileged path to understanding God. And what in the entire world has more of a right to be made beautiful than our churches. So that's number eight. So, all right, cool. Just a reminder, guys, we have number one, though these are not really in order, we have the uh, barriers of the dead. Certainly a need. This could be self-funding. It's a time where the church can show love to people who need it most. Then we have the order of the inquisitor. We're helping out bishops to make sure that what's being taught in Catholic churches is Catholicism, which it really should be. Next, we have the Order of the Crusader. We should be freeing captives, and we can't always rely on governments, etc., to do it, so this one's going to have to be set up right. Um, couldn't really get into it, but I think there's a place for the Order of Crusader, and I bet you there's a lot of people who would want to sign up to do exactly that. The Missionaries of the Unwanted. Again, this is something that weirdly can fund itself. And if governments refuse to fund religious organizations, well, I think we can certainly set up a, a pretty awesome uh, discrimination lawsuit on that. And we probably should because the church ought to be operating in this space. And uh, yeah, um, there you go. So then we have the order of the jailer. That was the next one I suggested. Being involved in prison ministries is something which is incredible. Wouldn't it be great if we could just build the prison and figure this out all of ourselves, making it a place where people really could 
be reformed and repentant. We have St. Paul, the tent maker. These are, um, are awesome Alpha Chad priests who go out and do very well-paying but difficult labor as a testament to uh, their love of the people and their care so that they can give to them in material ways and be a sign of uh, the many ways that uh, our Father in Heaven gives to us. St. Joseph the Foster Father, that's where people go into communities where there's the least fathers and act as a father to them. And finally, the servants of Cyrus, people who go out to help rebuild our, uh, rebuild our churches, rebuild our cathedrals, to make the places of worship beautiful and to lend their architectural and, uh, and artistic talent to the service of God. All right, so when Jesus began his ministry, he decided to read from a scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. Um, and I like how he did it. There's a few mic drop moments, and uh, one of them is his picking up the scroll and uh, reading about himself. I imagine he dropped the microphone after that. But we're going to read this passage because I think it's naming a huge amount, if not all, of my suggested eight orders, in addition to some, some, some which are already going on, like feeding people. We're actually pretty good at that. All sorts of people are out there feeding and clothing, but there's a few that kind of get ignored, and that's why I wanted to highlight them. All right, let's read right from Isaiah. This is what's being described as what will be going on and what should be going on when the Messiah comes. That's why Jesus announces it at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations." Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I greatly delighted in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, and he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and adorned me in the, adorned me in the robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride ador adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up in a garden, causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. So here you go. That's what we're called to do. Let's make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Let's be a witness to them at the fact that our Messiah has come. And he has a character that's described here. I, I actually think that it named pretty, I think it did name every single um, task which I suggested here. All right. Um, cool. Let's, uh, let's hit a, a quick couple comments on the last episode. And then, guys, it's, it's mailbag time. If you have not participated in the mailbag, well, you know what? Uh, send in your questions. I always appreciate them. You can ask anything you can possibly imagine. Just email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. Pretty easy to remember. Thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And I always love every suggestion and comment and, and uh, all that good stuff. So email me that anytime. Okay. Some of you guys thought I was a bit harsh on the Pope last time, so let me do a few clarifications. Uh, first, 
It's actually fine to be upset at the Pope or bishops, priests, or anybody if they do harm to others. So if you're sowing confusion, even if it's not what you meant, but if you are sowing confusion, that's going to hurt other people, uh, it's fine to be upset about that. So if you're upset by the Pope's uh, statement, um, that's fine. That's normal. Mm -hmm. I thought it was upsetting. Sure. Also, it's fine to oppose public statements that the Pope says when he is expressly not teaching from the chair of Peter. So if he is teaching as Pope and he's doing it authoritatively, well then, we're there to listen, not just to criticize. But if he's just making comments, which he explicitly says are his own personal opinion and not part of what the church is teaching officially, well then, those are things we can totally criticize. It's also fine to attack things which are, are false. For instance, I attacked universalism a, uh, a bunch. Um, it's okay to let people know that not everything the Pope does is good. And it's even okay to think that he's a bad Pope, right? Bad Popes happen, guys. And uh, yeah, if you think he's a bad Pope, well, my first word of caution is ask how you know that. Because there's a lot of misinformation flying around. So you don't want to have a poor opinion of somebody because of misinformation. So if you think he's a bad pope, just settle down and look into what he's actually said. But if you do that and you come to that conclusion, okay, bad popes happen. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to pretend that he's a pope that you like or that he's a good pope, etc. We don't just want to be condemning him for the sake of condemnation, but we can be honest with ourselves and others that, hey, I disagree with a lot of the prudential judgments he's done. I don't like the way that he uh, expresses himself to the media. I wish it was more clear. Oh, that's fine. Like, we can do this, <laughs> right? Especially if it's done in a spirit of charity. There's absolutely a place for all of that. And when the Pope does something... Um, like what we're referencing here in the last episode, is he said something to, to the effect that he hopes all are saved, which there is a proper way to explain that. And we went through that and talked about the prayer of Fatima. So, you know, we address that. But he said that he imagines it as, or he likes to imagine it as empty. And listen, the Pope does affirm that hell's real and people go there from other statements. But the way that he set this up is going to sow confusion. Did he mean to do that? Don't know. I don't know the Pope. Um, does he believe something unorthodox? Well, I don't think so. No, he seems to be all right in other places. But was he very unclear in a way that will harm other people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that, and we should. And if we're just silent about it, well, then people are going to get the impression that we affirm whatever they understood the Pope is having said. Okay. Um, let's see here. I think the Pope opposes universalism and therefore would be very happy that myself and others have made episodes to attack the misunderstanding of what he would be teaching if he was teaching from the chair of Peter. So, yeah, I, I don't think that we're going against the Pope by teaching against universalism because I don't think he's a universalist. I do think that we are going against the way that people understand his statements when he speaks in a way that's sloppy and is prone to have people take it entirely the wrong way. Um, let's see here. As far as the whole um, can all be saved, well, it's not metaphysically impossible it is off the table because of what scripture says, namely what Jesus says when he's asked point blank and in multiple gospels, what the church fathers say, um, what, what, what the church tradition has said from the beginning. It, it, it's, it's not a, a Catholic thing to say that in the end all will be saved. You can hope any individual person will be saved. Mm-hmm. You can hope that every person responds to every shred of grace and gets to heaven. Sure, there's orthodox ways to do this. But we can't delude ourselves into thinking that people who are in unrepentant uh, states will enter heaven. Paul says, do not be deceived. And then he names a list of mortal sinners and says they will not be in heaven. So 
we got to stick to scripture, guys. Um, I, I'd like to think that the Pope would be 100% with me on that. From what I've seen elsewhere, yeah, he would. At least he must be from his official position. Who knows what he thinks in his heart? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Aquinas gave us a good distinction between respect that we have for the person and the office. So I think we all need to respect the office of Pope to an extraordinarily high degree. Um, but yeah, we can make up our minds about the person who inhabits this specific position. Um, do that carefully, right? Mm -hmm. But um, you'd be totally fine in thinking that he's a bad Pope. You can not like him personally, not like the way he handles stuff, and still have a very high view of the papacy. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Also made the point that we need to be praying for the Pope. That is actually a responsibility we have, and if we don't do it, um, well, he's... He's prone to have a pretty tough time, guys. So that's something we absolutely have to do. And we actually ended a prayer in that episode for the Pope. <laughs> um, and I hope you guys are echoing that over where you're at. Oh, let's see. What else? Not trying to sow outrage for the sake of outrage. If you've listened to this show for a long time, I, th I think you'd, you realize that I pretty much avoid all church news, <laughs> try to avoid most political stuff. I avoid most everything which is the common subject of outrage. I didn't make any comment about the recent document about uh, blessing people in a same-sex union. Uh, I just punted other podcasters who I thought do a better job, um, and I'll continue doing that. I tend to avoid this. However, I didn't see this particular issue, um, the one about uh, seemingly supporting universalism. It certainly was giving the universalists some bullets, and it sounds like the Pope's in support, whether he is or not. Um, I didn't see enough people actually addressing that. I think that there is a growing surge of universalism in the church that needs to be roundly condemned, so I wanted to condemn it. And if I was too harsh on the Pope, but somebody... Uh, taking the moral life more seriously. Um, I think that's, I, I think that's worth it. <laughs> totally. No problem. So the end of the day, guys, is if that episode or really any episode of anything you're listening, um, makes you upset or, um, causes you to be outraged. Well, Hey, I at least have like 175 other episodes you can be listening to. So skip it. Totally. However, I do want that one to stand, and I stand by what I said there, because there are also people who said that that was very helpful, and now they're more prepared to have difficult conversations with people who might take universalism as an excuse to ignore the moral life. So, I think I've done enough qualifications. Um, definitely keep up praying for Pope Francis. Uh, don't be afraid to be honest about your opinion. Be charitable, but we, we can be, uh, but yeah. Mm -hmm. It's fine to uh, to make that distinction between the person and the office, just like Aquinas did, and to hope that uh, everybody can be nice and clear in, uh, in what they're putting out, especially if it has eternal significance. So stand by that episode, guys. And uh, yeah, but I do want to say, hey, I'm, I'm not one for outrage for the sake of outrage. That certainly isn't the intention of the episode. It's to make sure that you guys aren't universalists. And to say that the Pope needs to be more clear and that we, we should have that on the table, that, yeah, he's not as clear as we want him to be. No, he's not doing the things that we wish a Pope would always do. And, uh, yeah, I think that helps particularly Protestants because when they see silence from Catholics, they think that that's just uh, us rubber stamping everything the Pope does. Some of it's problematic. Therefore, they think Catholicism is problematic. All right. High time we hit the mailbag, guys. We have a brand new sound to introduce the mailbag. So um, this one's an economic question coming up. This question comes from Noah, and he says... To play a bit of devil's advocate, I listened to your episode on six-ish economic misconceptions. And though I, too, support the free market system, I was curious as to what you would say to somebody who objected 
that it is not actually a make before you take system as it is some as it sometimes begins by taking a resource perhaps exploitatively or in a way not in accordance with teachings on stewardship then making a product with such resources and then eventually taking afterwards so it could perhaps be more accurately described as a take make take system all right I think that's a good uh, objection for sure. So if it's um, this objection is talking about like taking and that's exploiting, say, the environment. So it's a problem with environmental stewardship. There is another, um, ooh, I forget which episode it is, but I do take this up in economic myths, the idea that the, the uh, free market destroys the environment. So I'll kind of punt to that. But I think he might be referring more to um, like colonization. So we're we're taking from people, and uh, then we're using the natural resources we took from other people to make stuff, and then the whole system gets rolling. So is it really starting here? Is the question? Is this an objection? Um. I guess the first thing I want to say to this is whenever we get an objection, whether it's in economics, theology, philosophy, etc., we really want to be very clear on what the objection is assuming and what it's condemning. Because here's, here's something kind of funny about this. There are people who say that it is wrong to say have England, this, this particular listener is from England, um, to have England go and colonize some place in, say, Africa and take their resources um, just because they, they militarily can, right? They, they say that's wrong. That's, that's the root of this problem of colonization. They're just taking these natural resources from people, um, and this is condemned. And sure, mm-hmm, yep, I think that's wrong too. But I might ask the objector why it's wrong and what would be better. Because it seems that what they're saying is that they object to a government using force to take from people without compensation. That they're actually objecting to the lack of property rights protection for these people. Which is very curious because many of the people who launch this type of of objection are socialists. And in socialism, that's where the government uses force to take from other people without giving anything in return to them. So it seems that in order for them to launch an objection against colonialism, the use of force by a government to take from people against their will, well, then they have to apply it also to socialism because it's the same problem. Now, you might say, well, okay, maybe, but, but you know, this is, this is in another country. Well, okay, now we're simply extending it to, we believe that not only in our own country ought we not use coercion, but instead have just compensation with property rights, but we also believe that other countries should have it. Now it seems to launch this attack, it's actually turning into a support for the spread of free markets, private property, and freedom across the world, something I would certainly be a fan of. Um... So just be careful when people are making this objection. What they're actually asking for in an alternative is, why didn't you ask if these people would like to sell at a market price instead of taking it from them? So what they're asking for is not less free markets, but more free markets. Free markets which govern the relationship between countries instead of force. Something we can all get on board with. So that's the first thing I'll say is to those objecting, be careful because the way you object to this one can be an objection to your own support of socialism. Um, And you know what? I want to move to something else here. It also assumes, I said there's some things which you have to be careful about what it's actually objecting to. And then we need to look carefully at what it's assuming. So often assumed is that natural resources are this massive amount 
of value in any economy. And that if you have the natural resources, well, that gives you a huge leg up. And we've all heard this, that the only reason the West is rich is because we plundered all the natural resources from poorer countries. That is manifestly false. In fact, there's a fellow who's just wrote a book on it. And if I remember his name or the name of his book, I'll have him on the show. So if you guys know of it, send it over. Um, here's some stats on this. There's what's called a uh, natural resource rent as a percentage of GDP measure. Roughly what happens here is they take the difference between the prevailing commodity price and the average extraction cost. So that basically represents the, the, the like margin that you get off of natural resources. So if it were really true that uh, natural resources were this massive, incredibly profitable part of the economy, which can be the difference between a rich West and a, and a, uh, a poor third world nation, then we would expect that to be pretty big, right? Well, here are the numbers. Worldwide, it's about 3%. That's 2021 data. Back in 2020, it was only 1.5%. <laughs> it's not very much. In the UK, where this listener is sending this devil's advocate objection from, uh, your economy is 0.59% rents from natural resources. So the vast majority of value is not created from the exploitation of natural resources. Certainly not in developed countries like the UK and not even in the world at large where it just went up to 3%. What actually is creating value is what we do with these natural resources. Um, we already have plenty already extracted, and we can manipulate and use those. And then there's plenty of things which don't really require any natural resources at all, or at least minimum. For instance, software or songs. Taylor Swift is not plundering the rainforest to, to make her new album. She doesn't have to. She can provide value without really consuming much of anything resource-wise. No, there's always some amount of input. Um, so that's the next problem. It assumes that these natural resources are this huge source of wealth that would divide the rich from the poor nations. But the fact is, it's a tiny amount. We have data on this that's not the difference. And then, historically speaking, I don't think that um, I don't think the objection that colonization is the cause of um, the, disparate, uh, the disparate economic lives of the rich and the poor. I don't think that that's good too, but I'll try to get that guest to make that case because I'm not an economic historian. All right. Um, yeah, I guess we can get a little bit into the environmental part. So in short, if this is we're only taking as far as being free marketers, and we're taking from, say, the environment, which ought not be exploited, well, here's the issue. One, socialist and non-market economies in general have an absolutely abysmal record. If you look at, say, the USSR, you look at China, you look at many other uh, countries that don't have as thriving markets, they do worse. So if this is really a damning critique of the free market system, it's a worse critique of the alternatives. So keep that in mind. Now you might be thinking, yes, but what about the Nordic nations? Aren't they wonderful? Well, I've addressed those in a couple earlier episodes. So go check out those um, economic episodes from ooh, probably about a year ago or so. I'll add that in a free market, we actually have self-correcting mechanisms going on. So, for instance, if you start to be using up a scarce resource and it's becoming even more scarce, the price rises for that resource, which means people are less likely to want to purchase it because it's more expensive and they'll look for something which is an alternative resource. In other words, as we get to be scarce with what we're collecting, there's a self-correcting mechanism that encourages us to look elsewhere for something else because what we're mining or fishing, etc., is becoming scarce. So that's one of the many self-correcting mechanisms in the free market that wouldn't necessarily exist absent a market. 
Um, let's add another one. I, about, oh goodness, about a year and a half ago, I, I was at a, uh, a lab at a college to do a, a little presentation on environmental economics. And I did this game for them because, you know, little college students love games. So I brought a bunch of Swedish fish. I had them all gather around their lab tables. I said, all right, here's the game. Uh, you're all fishermen. And I'm going to put some fish here in this ocean, which is your table. And whoever gets the most fish wins. Okay, that's rule number one. And the second thing I want you to know about this game is if you can wait 30 seconds, that is the period of time it takes for the fish to generate new fish. And I will add fish to your little ocean so you can all be better off. You can all get more fish at the end of the day, but you all have to wait 30 seconds, okay? Okay, we good with the rules of the game? And I dumped the fish out, and in about one second, one of them would go and reach for a fish, and then... The equilibrium is such that if everybody else doesn't also reach for them, then everybody else wins the game and they lose and have nothing. Then I introduced property rights. I had them put their arms out on the table to make their section, their quota, or their percentage of the catch, whichever way we want to set up this market, and said, all right, this is yours. Now, if you wait 30 seconds, just like last time, they repopulate. All the rules of the game are the same. The difference is I'm giving you guys property rights over this section. Poured it in. Sure enough, everybody magically waited until I was out of Swedish fish and I poured them all out. Um, that's an example of how the resources are not exploited when we have property rights, which is the core of the free market property rights. Um, rule of law, free exchange, etc., right? So I would say, instead of condemning the free markets as always exploiting resources, we should say that we can set it up such that people have long-term incentives to have resources into the future, including environmental ones. And that's going to have a much better outcome than whatever's going on in non-market economies, which lack both that long-term perspective and the self-correcting mechanisms of changing prices. All right, I hmm, I hope I answered that one sufficiently for you guys, but if I didn't, you can always look back at some of those earlier episodes, and I've covered some similar stuff there too. Well, thanks, as always, for listening, guys. Email me whenever at thegordianot101 at gmail.com. Love to hear from you all. God bless.